Welcome to the Lumpin' Week in Review, the show that presents the best of Lumpin' Radio each week. This week, we discussed the aftermath of the Gulf War, learned about Chicago House, and heard brand new music from one of Lumpin's favorites. All this plus the latest from Eureka Cast Now, Size Matters, and the Biden Files. It's the Lumpin' Week in Review for March 26, 2021. Chuck Mertz spoke with Kathy Kelly on the lingering after-effects of the Gulf War on Iraq's people. The Gulf War, which ended 30 years ago last month, still also carries outside importance in America, with scores of veterans fighting illnesses caused by chemical weapons and PTSD. Find out more on This Is Hell every Thursday and Sunday at 10 a.m. Now, usually I'd be introducing you as co-coordinator of Voices for Concern Nonviolence, but according to Voices website, the campaign ended on December 31st, 2020. Why did the campaign end and what do you think it achieved? Well, we certainly, as a group of people over 25 years, were incredibly fortunate. We were able to build relationships with people who could help us better understand United States wars of choice. And we quite often did that by going to the places where the wars were happening in Iraq and in Afghanistan. Um, We had traveled to Gaza several times. So we were um, fortunate in that way. You know, now in a time of climate catastrophe, I think, you know, the question of international travel really becomes a bigger question. And uh, we also, in a time of COVID, weren't traveling. And so we thought, well, perhaps this is the time to bring that particular campaign to a close. But no one that I know who's been active with it is at all saying we're not going to remain active. Uh, There's so much to do right now to try to bring an end to the continued uh, war making and uh, just vile production of weaponry and sale of weaponry around the world. You referred to America's wars as wars of choice, yet the United States constantly, whenever we do go to war, whenever the United States does go to war, they always try to frame it as it was a position that was forced upon us, that we had no choice, that it was the last resort. Why do you believe that these are wars of choice instead of wars being due to having no choice? Well, you know, one clip that um, a friend of mine who is actually now in prison for protesting nuclear weapons, Carmen Trada, has said is that uh, formerly people may have manufactured weapons to wage wars, but in our world, the United States uh, goes to war in order to sell weapons. And I think that in terms of wars of choice, the United States has continued to practice a colonial attitude that says, uh, we can take over your resources. If you do not subordinate your country to serve our national interests, we will crush you. And the United States can then say, if you don't believe us, look at Iraq. And there's always a cloak of moral righteousness. And in the case of Iraq, certainly Iraq should not have invaded Kuwait. Countries aren't allowed to just go in and take over other countries. But the hypocrisy of the United States, which had just, uh, this was back in 1990 that Iraq invaded Kuwait. The United States had previously invaded Panama invaded Grenada, and I think it was really only because of just consistent grassroots popular uh, resistance that the United States didn't invade several other countries and try to take them over in Central and South America. 
So the United States has had a long history of describing its vital interests that must be defended in terms of protecting our ability to, to take other people's precious and irreplaceable resources at cut rate prices or to have geopolitically strategic bases in other people's countries. It's, it, there's been an enormous insistence on control and fulfilling that through wars of choice. And you quote President George H.W. Bush at the time saying that the United States doesn't allow larger countries to swallow up smaller countries, referring Iraq to Kuwait. So why does the United States, why do you think the United States and its government wants people to believe that the United States is the little guy, is not the big guy, is the little guy who is helping out the little guy? What's What's the point of having that framing that the United States is... The, not the big, bad country that swallows up other countries, but the one who helps out the little guy. Well, I think there's thin support for wars. Um, and, and, and in a way, the United States has said, well, we're going to kick that Vietnam syndrome. You know, after the Vietnam War, there was extremely thin support for the United States going into uh, another aggressive war wherein there would be um, thousands of people coming back in body bags and people would see on the nightly news these gruesome attacks against Vietnamese children with napalm. So I think the United States um, military wanted to promote the idea of, I mean, it's certainly an oxymoron, but humanitarian wars, uh, the responsibility to protect, the idea that somehow uh, other dictators are so cruel and so abusive and um, irrational and must be stopped. And that's a, that's a way to market wars to uh, a sometimes gullible public. But when people are informed, when the media isn't suppressing uh, real documents and real events that are taking place, I think there's far less readiness to support wars, although it certainly is true increasingly uh, that our major industries require wars in order to continue to manufacture weapons. Has the pandemic given cover for war, made it so there is less criticism and scrutiny of war? Can can crises, whether it's climate change or the pandemic, distract us from the very, very important issue of war? Mm, well, you know, if we take a look at the worst humanitarian crisis constantly unfolding in the world today, then we must look at Yemen. And uh, the United Nations is saying there could be 2.5 million Yemeni children suffering from severe acute malnourishment. Children, if they do survive, never really recover from that hideous kind of malnourishment that affects their growth, their development, their brain power. The, um, the, The struggle to present that awareness to people in the United States is is certainly certainly uphill. It was interesting to me, Chuck, to learn that Saudi Arabia, which has been helped enormously by the United States in waging this war, I mean, still, as far as I can tell, in Marinette, Wisconsin, four big 
they call them littoral combat ships, are being manufactured for sale to Saudi Arabia through a Lockheed Martin contract, and the Saudis use those ships to blockade Yemen's ports. And that's one of the reasons that there's such a huge crisis in terms of importation of desperately needed fuel. Well, um, Saudi Arabia is hiring public relations consulting firms to improve the image of Saudi Arabia, not in D.C. or New York, but in Des Moines, Iowa, in parts of Maine, in North Carolina. And, and their strategy is to sort of give up on the idea of repairing the image of Saudi Arabia after, you know, they call Mohammed uh, bin Salman Mr. Bonesaw after the murder of Jamal Khashoggi but also um, the war in Yemen. But if they go to places where most people have never heard of war against Yemen, of Yemeni children starving, then they can focus on this kind of cool new prince who's um, going to allow women to drive and is beginning to come up with innovative reforms. And that that's, I think, um, the presumption. It, it speaks of the presumption that the United States is a nation of big children who can be cajoled through entertainment and sports and uh, cool figures, celebrity figures, to be totally distracted from the actual militarism and militarization that predominates in our society. So it, it gives us our work to do, doesn't it? Yeah, it's the obsession with the celebritification of culture instead of what is the reality of culture. How, how much hope do you have for the Biden administration when it comes to the many ongoing wars around the world that continue due to the legacy of the war on terror, including a war that you were just mentioning, but a war that you and I have discussed here on the show before, a war that you've been active in protesting, and that is the war in Yemen. Do Biden's moves so far uh, signal a change when it comes to U.S. support for war because, you know, there seems to be contradictory moves. There seems to be him, you know, reconsidering American U.S. support for uh, Saudi Arabia in the war in Yemen. But at the same time, there's the Biden bombing of Syria without congressional support. So how much hope do you have for the Biden administration when it comes to war? Well, I think we have to acknowledge that, as was true of the Obama administration, we are looking at people in the um, administration who are centrists and militarists. Uh, you know, prior to the election of Joe Biden, David Calhoun, who is the CEO of Boeing, headquartered in Chicago, said to shareholders, um, you know, as far as our defense uh, Boeing's defense system and sales, uh, he said, I don't think we have to worry no matter who is in the White House. Uh, the United States is always going to want to defend its democracy. And, you know, that, that's supposed to be swallowed. Well, I think the Biden administration has not come out clearly and said that uh, people in Yemen are no threat to the United States whatsoever. They've said that they're going to be allied with Saudi Arabia, no matter what, they'll help Saudi Arabia protect itself. And so, you know, people can look at the various weapons that the United States continues to sell to Saudi Arabia and just say, oh, yeah, well, that's defensive, not offensive. Um, we haven't seen the blockade lifted, and the United States, with a phone call, could very likely prevail on Saudi Arabia to lift that blockade. But instead, I believe they're using United States manufactured ships to 
enforce the blockade. Uh, so I, I don't think that um, President Biden is being faithful to the people who put him in office when he then turns over foreign policy to people who are actually quite hawkish and willing to continue uh, using uh, U.S. manufactured weapons in order to bludgeon other countries into submission. Kevin Sy chatted with DJ Lady D about her career in Chicago music on Sunday Record Club. Known as the Queen of Chicago House, DJ Lady D spoke about Disco's Revenge, her work with the Chicago Public Library, and her career as a woman in music in the city. Sunday Record Club airs the third Sunday of the month at noon. Hey everybody, I'm DJ Lady D. To tell you about myself, I guess I uh, really started loving music. How did I get into it? My whole family was into music. My mom, my dad, my brothers and sisters. I have five of those. More specifically, my brothers were DJs and had big hi-fi systems at home. And so from probably as early as two, would have memories of just playing on the record player. Um, Some of my first tactile experiences were with techniques and pioneer equipment and uh, big, big speakers and, you know, touching the cones and watching them move and uh, just spending a lot of time looking at albums and records. And so we had a lot of that at my home. Lots of music from everything from country and Western. Uh, My parents are from Tennessee and uh, up until classical really so everything uh, nothing was off limits in my home and I was the beneficiary of that yeah and then also I came of age during the first house music explosion and so that really set me on a path of embracing that music for me personally it was more relatable for me than any other music I really liked the principles of love and unity and connection, community. And so um, 
I found it easy to get into it. And that just continued. I did start DJing a little bit in high school. I was uh, friends with a lot of people who had turntables and we had a lot of people from the mainstream underground, such as the Hot Mix 5, Frankie Knuckles, you know, Steve Hurley, people like that would come and perform at my high school, which was Whitney Young. Dolphins, anybody out there? What's up? And we had a lot of that going on at the school, but also Chicago at the time, there were so many spaces in which to feel, experience, and enjoy, and commune with other people who also enjoyed that type of experience in terms of house music. So went away to college and came back, still house and club, and slightly after a couple of years of uh, grad school, medical school, I just said no. (laughs) My whole body, mind, and soul rejected it. And so I found myself going out, going to clubs, feeding my creative energies, what they were um, dying of thirst for. So I eventually found myself becoming a DJ, being involved with people who were in that world at the time. And it was the thing that was calling to me the most. So that's how I ended up DJ Lady D, yeah, 25 years later. Thank you so much for sharing, Darlene. It sounds like music has always been there at the very beginning of your life, and it's been destined to stay there. I know the feeling, and I am happy to hear that this is something that's been an ongoing pride and joy for you. Also exciting to see some of the exposure you got early on to some of the greats, you know, Steve Hurley, um, Frankie Knuckles. I wish I could say I had some of that kind of talent play at my high school back in the day. But yeah, thank you so much for sharing. Uh, If you don't mind, how would you describe your approach to DJing? I guess my approach to DJing is to use technique, improvisation, creativity, and just mix it up with a lot of love. And so uh, if I pull those four elements together, uh, then generally I I trust that it's going to be a good night. Those all sound like elements to a perfect mix. And it seems like leaning on all the years of experience and the music that you've collected and supported over the years, there's just no way a night could go wrong. I understand that you developed the curriculum and taught at Girls Rock Chicago for nine years. Tell us about what your community work looks like and maybe talk about how you used your musicality to advocate self-esteem and confidence. I love playing in clubs, but I also love working with the various organizations around Chicago that I'm involved with, which include Collaboration Theater, uh, where I sit on the board, Honey Pot Performance, where I'm also on their advisory board. Um, I guess I should say with Collaboration, I'm the board chair officially. And I've worked with numerous organizations, RVA, Rape Victims Advocates, uh, Girls Rock Chicago, where I was able to develop their uh, curriculum for DJing. They used to only do rock bands. And after a few workshops that I did for them in the summer, I became part of the curriculum. So you could choose either DJing or being in a rock band. And so that's been pretty cool and pretty rewarding. And I still have some students uh, that came through my Girls Rock program who are DJing today. So that's exciting. There really is no better feeling than having your students come back and saying that you made a, a change in their life. I think it's a beautiful thing. 
moving forward, I want to address some of the broader issues that you've helped surface in many ways, uh, especially in the music industry. You champion equity in the music industry for women, both in representation and opportunity. In an interview last year, you said that there is no shortage of women DJs, specifically calling out 2018 and 2020 as years in which platforms like Coachella and Bonnaroo lacked female representation. With you being part of Super Jane in the years past, how have you seen the music industry change in your 25 years as a DJ? Where are we going from here and what do you hope to see? My involvement with Super Jane, which began in 1997, was interesting at the time. I took for granted after having performed for about two years regularly in a constant rotation around Chicago and um, actually in the Midwest that I had started traveling a lot. I assumed that being a girl DJ was no big deal. However, uh, I realized from the number of uh, people who approached that it was quite a big deal. And the type of press and attention that Super Jane got was, I think, unprecedented. And we ended up being trendsetters for women DJs at the time. So that was quite a testament to the power of collective energy, all moving in the same direction. And so we did go far and fast together. I think that Super Jane was great in, in terms of changing the music industry at that time, allowing women to be visible on a major stage. Uh, we had write-ups in Spin and Billboard and Herb. And, and so there were many magazines that mentioned us, and then also ones here like New City, so all of us enjoyed a lot of attention from the uh, collective, but we also had our individual careers that were also taking off in their own ways. And so that part was inspiring to me personally. So in those 25 years since we started Super Jane in 97, the industry has changed a bit, but it almost seems like it went full circle. So we might be back to where we began. When we started, it was novel, inspirational, motivational to see four women playing at once with their own individual unique styles and uh, rocking the show, rocking the party, taking themselves seriously, not gimmicky. And we did what we uh, intended to do, which was to just show ears are not biased. They don't see gender. <laughs> and so girls could be DJs too and do it properly. Okay. So that was one thing. And then that visibility that was created from that that inspired people in general, not just men, not just women, but a lot of different types of people to take up the mantle, good or bad. We did hear from many people that they began to DJ after they saw us. And that in and of itself tells me that I was in the right place at the right time. But in the last two to three years, 
it's become a familiar refrain for me to hear from people. Wow, you are so good. You're so good for a girl. And what does that mean? Well, I've never seen a girl DJ play before. Excuse me? So I just know that uh, when I started hearing that and in multiple uh, venues and multiple events in different places, that there was a problem. <laughs> There's a problem there. And then when you couple that with the lineups for some of the bigger festivals at the time, I would see uh, Coachella or Bonnaroo or Virgin Fest or whatever. And the lineups would be so deeply skewed where there would not be a lot of women on them, artists or DJs. And it made me feel like we were losing ground. So I challenge people really to be intentional when they are booking artists for shows, booking artists for panels, for interviews, to consider intentionality and to make sure that they are providing balance and visibility for the audience uh, because more perspectives are needed and more perspectives are good. I appreciate your perspective on this very much. Thank you so much, Darlene. I agree with you. Intentionality is a must. And I applaud your challenging of the industry itself of asking agencies and agents and bookers to really try to put more representation, to put more women, to put more diversity on these lineups. Because at the end of the day, you're absolutely right. It's, it's, it's a good thing and it's a necessary thing. And the fact that in a lot of ways it's taken this long and, and kind of what you had said about it coming full circle, we still have a lot more to do, a lot more to go through and a lot more growth as an industry. So I applaud your, your, your stance on this and I wholeheartedly support it. This leads me to my next question. Before the pandemic, you were working on the Good Girls Festival. You said in the interview that I quoted earlier that we are here to balance the musical scales. What is the Good Girls Festival and how are you hoping to balance those musical scales? Good Girls Festival to me was going to be an answer to the lopsidedness of what I was seeing going on with festivals. It would be something to me that would balance the musical scales, meaning it would be the opportunity to have a showcase for women in electronic music and dance music to be a time to give intense visibility to women, all identifying women working in the music industry, not just DJs and uh, musicians, but engineers and all kinds of adjunct professionals. And so I wanted to end a very tired trope that was recurring in my 25-year career that uh, you're good for a girl. You're really good for a girl. Uh, almost every woman artist has heard it. And if they haven't, they probably will at some point. And so the idea is that it really needs to end. We need to retire the passe and old ways of visioning careers for women. If a woman wants to be a DJ, there's nothing to stop her. 
and venues that rely on women patronage should provide more opportunities for women to be involved. And so, yes, this was planned to start in 2020, but it did not because of COVID. And 2021, we're still kind of in a holding pattern. But my main protagonists that are hanging with me through this concept Lori Branch and Viddy Girl, two other DJ women and producers, are um, essentially our core group, which is our good girls. And so when we do do the Good Girls Fest, it will be so encompassing either um, as something that is an ongoing festival, it could be uh, a long-term uh, collaboration with a venue. It could be a day fest. It could be a series of events coordinated around certain themes and issues. It's going to be an ongoing thing one way or the other. We're going to get it together. I mean, we're already doing events and marketing them, and it's just going to be a matter of time before we're able to put it all together. But it's a small idea that's building steam, building purpose, building audience. And that's all I can ask for at the moment. This week on the Biden Files, Biden gets 100 million doses in well under 100 days. Trump claims he's going to launch Trumpster, the social network. Two mass shootings rock America. Obamacare sign-up surge, a Colorado Republican says QAnon will be proved right, and Trump now faces some 32 separate legal actions. These are the Biden files. Day 59, March 19th. The United States surpassed Biden's goal of administering 100 million COVID-19 vaccines in 100 days, 41 days ahead of schedule. The United States is now averaging nearly 2.5 million injections per day. 36% of the USA senior citizens have been fully vaccinated. The House passed two immigration bills that would establish a path to citizenship for roughly 3.4 million undocumented immigrants. One would create a path for citizenship for the approximately 2.5 million undocumented immigrants who were brought to the U.S. as children, known as DREAMers. The other would allow 1 million undocumented farm workers to apply for legal status. The bills are narrower than the comprehensive immigration package introduced in February that would have created a path for most of the 11 million undocumented immigrants in the U.S. Now, despite calling the situation at the border a grave crisis, House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy dismissed both bills, saying, quote, this bill could not be less timely or less targeted to the issue at hand. In a related story, more than 500 unaccompanied migrant children and teens have been held in jail-like detention centers for more than 10 days at the border. Russia took the rare step of recalling its ambassador to Washington after President Biden referred to the Russian strongman as a killer. Speaking in celebration of the anniversary of Russia's illegal annexation of Crimea, Putin all but called Biden a killer himself. Putin also dryly wished Biden good health after warning of the possibility of, quote, an irreversible deterioration of relations. The White House said Biden stood by his comments. The FBI is investigating if embattled Governor Andrew Cuomo of New York and his aides gave false data on nursing home deaths in the state to the Justice Department. Cuomo, who has been accused of sexual misconduct by a host of women, has refused to step down. The FBI is also investigating how a provision came to pass in last year's New York State budget that granted nursing homes and hospitals broad legal protections during the pandemic, which made it difficult for residents and families to sue. 
President Biden agreed to send about 2.5 million doses of the AstraZeneca coronavirus vaccine to Mexico. The announcement of that deal followed a call where Biden asked Mexican President Andres Lopez Obrador if more could be done to limit the flow of migrants coming to the border. Mexico subsequently announced it will limit travel across its northern and southern borders starting on March 19th, deploy sanitary control measures at both borders to slow the spread of COVID-19. And a dozen House Republicans voted against awarding congressional gold medals to three police officers who defended the Capitol when it was attacked by a pro-Trump mob. The lawmakers specifically objected to the use of the term insurrectionists in the resolution, as well as the word temple to describe the Capitol. More than a quarter of members of Congress have now turned down the coronavirus vaccine. And President Biden stumbled several times as he climbed the stairs to Air Force One to board a flight to Atlanta, where he and Vice President Harris planned to meet with an Asian-American leader in the wake of the mass shooting there. In response, Donald Trump Jr. shared an edited video showing his father knocking down President Biden with a golf ball. Day 60, March 20th. President Biden urged Congress to swiftly pass the COVID-19 Hate Crimes Act following a mass shooting that killed eight people, including six Asian-American women. Calling violence against Asian Americans skyrocketing, Biden urged the passage to expedite the federal response to the rise of hate crimes and provide support to state and local governments. Some 3,800 incidents of violence against Asian Americans have been documented in the past year. Many of the assailants have reportedly cited Trump's words. In the first public meeting since Biden took office, Chinese and U.S. diplomats traded barbs. The U.S. accused China of threatening world stability, while Chinese officials allege that America is a human rights hypocrite. Secretary of State Antony Blinken said Beijing needed to return to a rules-based system and expressed concerns about China's actions in Hong Kong and Xinjiang. China's Yang Zixi replied that the U.S. was being condescending and added, quote, we hope the United States will do better on human rights in a reference to the Black Lives Matter movement. That public exchange was supposed to be a four-minute photo op, but instead lasted more than an hour. The nation of Iran has apparently made threats against Fort McNair, which is an army base in Washington, D.C., and against the army's vice chief of staff. Communications intercepted by the National Security Agency in January showed that Iran's Revolutionary Guard discussed mounting USS Cole-style attacks against the base. The intelligence also revealed threats to kill General Joseph M. Martin and plans to infiltrate and surveil the base. The base, one of the oldest in the country, is Martin's official residence. An inspector general has found no evidence to support a Pennsylvania postal worker's claim that his supervisors had tampered with mail-in ballots during the presidential election. Richard Hopkins claimed he overheard plans to backdate ballots received after November 3rd. Hopkins later recanted those claims. However, Republicans repeatedly cited Hopkins' allegations to press baseless claims of voter fraud. New York state prosecutors have sent subpoenas to local governments near Trump's Seven Springs development as part of an inquiry into whether the value of the Westchester County property was improperly inflated to reduce his taxes. The Manhattan District Attorney's Office is also scheduled now to meet again with Michael Cohen for the eighth time. The Biden administration is looking forward to the middle of May to relax travel restrictions with Mexico and Canada and on inbound international travel from the UK, Europe and Brazil. It is unclear whether that will be reciprocal given the huge third wave currently happening in both Brazil and Europe. And Trump's Mar-a-Lago club has been partially closed after some of its employees were infected with coronavirus. In an email, the club said, quote, as some of our staff have recently tested positive for COVID-19, we will be temporarily suspending service at the beach club and a la carte dining room. Banquet and event services, however, will remain open. Day 61, March 21st. 
Crowds rallied around the United States this weekend to protest the killing of eight people, six of them of Asian descent, by a gunman who targeted three Atlanta massage businesses. Hundreds rallied in Atlanta on a march toward the state capitol. In Chicago, at least 300 protested in Logan Square, chanting, Stop Asian Hate. Hate crimes against Asian Americans have spiraled in the wake of the pandemic, fed by Trump's rhetoric and right-wing messaging. Rallies were also held in San Francisco, Houston, New York City, and Boise, Idaho. The Justice Department said the evidence the government has obtained in the investigation into the January 6th attack on the Capitol most likely meets the charge to bar with the suspects with sedition. The department has rarely brought charges of sedition, the crime of conspiring to overthrow the government. The last time prosecutors brought a sedition case was in 2010, when they accused members of the Michigan militia of plotting to provoke an armed conflict. That group was acquitted. The White House has asked several staffers to resign or work remotely after past marijuana use was discovered during their background checks. The shift in policy caught some unaware, and it came regardless of whether or not they had lived in one of the 14 states where the drug is legal. White House Press Secretary Jem Psaki later said only five people are no longer employed at the White House after disclosing cannabis use. And a top Trump advisor said the former president will build his own social network after major tech companies suspended his accounts. Jason Miller said Trump will be returning to social media in probably about two or three months here with his own platform. And this is something I think will be the hottest ticket in social media. It's going to completely redefine the game. Everyone is going to be waiting and watching to see exactly what Trump does. Day 62, March 22nd. British scientists warned that people may need to wear face coverings and socially distance for several years. This grim news was based upon the slow pace of most third world countries in rolling out vaccines, which in turn is giving rise to more variants. The USA also owns a major patent on a key component of COVID manufacture. World health experts are now pressing the Biden administration to waive that patent to a broad-based manufacture of messenger RNA vaccines. Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas said, quote, the border is closed. We are expelling families. We are expelling single adults. And we made a decision that we will not expel young, vulnerable children. Nearly 100,000 migrants were detained at the border in February. Mayorkas blamed Trump for the record number of migrants seeking entry, saying, quote, there was a system in place in both Republic and Democratic administrations that was torn down. And that is why the challenge is more acute than it ever has been before. Trump also slashed some $500 million in aid to Central America, making the crisis more acute in those countries. The House Oversight Committee held hearings on legislation to make Washington, D.C. the 51st state. Republicans are uniformly opposed to that idea, claiming the legislation violates the Constitution. They accused Democrats of backing it in an attempt to improve their majorities in the House and Senate. Trump took his first steps back into politics by taking aim at a Georgia official he concerns one of his biggest enemies, Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, who refused to overturn the state's election results last year. Trump endorsed Jody Heese, a Republican congressman, in his bid to unseat Raffensperger, praising him as, quote, one of our most outstanding congressmen. Unlike the current Georgia Secretary of State, Jody leads out front with integrity. Jody will stop the fraud and get honesty into our elections. Roger Stone has increasingly been invoked by both prosecutors and defendants in court filings, putting Trump's political confidant into the Capitol riot investigation. Stone has been connected personally with members of the Oath Keeper and the Proud Boys. Images entered into evidence show Stone had previous interactions with at least six defendants who prosecutors have accused of being players in organizing the riot. Stone has not been charged. He responded to press inquiries by calling it, quote, guilt by association with no factual basis and saying his role in the riot or other illegal acts is categorically false. 
Stone, of course, was pardoned by Trump for lying and for witness tampering in relation to the Russia probe. Representative Lauren Bavert of Colorado was asked whether a central part of the QAnon theory that Democrats would be rounded up and arrested would come true. Bavert replied at a Colorado town hall that she had heard from someone close to Trump that the wild rumors being published by a high-profile right-wing newspaper were accurate. She then claimed she knew someone who was helping to declassify information that Trump had ordered to be released. Quote, this person is getting very tired of waiting on the Justice Department to do something about it, and we will be hearing about it very, very soon. It is my opinion with that information, I believe we will see resignations begin to take place. And a wax statue of Trump on display at Louis Tussauds Palace of Wax in San Antonio, Texas, was punched and scratched so much it was removed from display. Assaults on the wax figure of Trump became more frequent during the election last year, and even after that statue was moved to the lobby where attendants could see it, the jabs, punches, scratches, and assaults did not stop. Day 63, March 23rd. Ten are dead after a mass shooting at a Colorado grocery store. One suspect is in custody and motive is as yet unknown. The shooting occurred at a King Supers grocery store near the campus of the University of Colorado. It is the second mass shooting in the USA inside a week. 18 people overall in the United States have been gunned down. President Biden is to introduce a massive $3 trillion infrastructure plan that we finance in part through tax increases on corporations and the rich. Biden is to make the case the efforts will boost the economy, reduce carbon emissions, and narrow income inequality with a once-in-a-lifetime spending plan targeted on America's sagging national infrastructure. Biden also wants to boost investment in American manufacturing and high-tech industries as part of an escalating conflict with China. The bill will include $1 trillion alone for the reconstruction of roads, bridges, rail lines, and ports, deployment of nationwide electric vehicle charging stations, and other retoots to the power grid. Meanwhile, nearly a quarter million Americans signed up for Obamacare during the first two weeks of an open enrollment period created by President Biden. That is a massive surge that was not predicted. The recently passed stimulus bill will also lower ACA costs to buyers. A provision in the President's $1.9 trillion stimulus bill to make Medicaid expansion more physically appealing has also convinced deep-red Alabama and Wyoming to expand the program to residents whose incomes are too high to qualify, but also too low to afford private health plans. The Education Department has canceled $1 billion in student loans for 72,000 students defrauded by for-profit schools. That move reversed a Trump policy. Former Secretary of Education Betsy DeVos overruled career officials on student loan forgiveness in 2019. Congress also tried to overturn that decision last March. Trump vetoed it. In a related story, Betsy DeVos earned at least $225 million in outside income while serving as Education Secretary. It's not clear where that money came from. Evanston has become the first municipality in the United States to begin a reparations program. The initiative will redress black residents for discriminatory housing policies and practices that were present in the Illinois Village for years. The $10 million program will be funded through marijuana sales tax revenues. Day 64, March 24th. A suspect has been formally charged in the murders of 10 people at a Boulder, Colorado grocery store. The suspect, named as Ahmad Al-Alawi Alyssa, is alleged to have used an AR-15 rifle bought just prior to the attack. The FBI said Alyssa was known to them because he was linked to another individual under investigation by the Bureau. The FBI made a point of saying that while he had been born in Syria, he had lived most of his life in the USA. President Biden responded by calling for a ban on assault weapons, which has little chance of advancing in the Senate. 
The House has already passed two bans. Republicans responded in the wake of the second mass shooting in America inside a week by denouncing calls for gun control as theater. In a grim irony, the city of Boulder, Colorado, had barred assault weapons in 2018 as a way to prevent mass shootings like the one at Columbine and like the one killed 17 at a high school in Parkland. It was blocked in a local court just 10 days ago. In an extraordinary development, federal health officials and an independent oversight board accused the manufacturer AstraZeneca of presenting the world with potentially misleading information about the effectiveness of that company's COVID-19 vaccine. An independent panel of medical experts that was helping oversee the clinical trial in the U.S. alleged that the company cherry-picked data that was, quote, most favorable for the study as opposed to the most recent and most complete. That move was a major blow to the company and to the vaccine, which has already been pulled from European countries over concerns about blood clots. Meanwhile, the European Union is to restrict exports of COVID-19 vaccines for six weeks to ease supply shortages. That is a sharp escalation in a supply issue that has seen the United Kingdom leap far ahead in vaccination of the bloc. The restrictions are to directly affect Britain as well as Canada and Israel, which heavily depend on EU manufacture. And former Trump campaign lawyer Sidney Powell responded to the defamation lawsuit brought against her by the voting machine company Dominion by claiming that, quote, reasonable people would not take her claims about widespread election fraud as fact. Given the highly charged and political context of the statements, it is clear that Powell was describing the facts on which she based the lawsuit she filed in support of Trump, Powell's defense team said in a motion to dismiss. Indeed, plaintiffs themselves characterized the statements at issue as wild accusations and outlandish claims. They are repeatedly labeled inherently improbable and even impossible. Therefore, this lawsuit should be dismissed. Day 65, March 25th. The Senate has begun hearings on a landmark voting rights bill that would usher in new campaign finance laws and end partisan gerrymandering of congressional districts. The legislation passed in the House along party lines earlier this month. The bill faces staunch opposition from Republicans who are working at the state level to actually dramatically restrict access to voting. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer called those efforts evidence of a new Jim Crow wave in the USA. The bill faces a steep uphill climb. Dr. Rachel Levine made history on becoming the first openly transgender person confirmed by the Senate to a federal position. Levine, who will serve as President Biden's Assistant Secretary for Health, immediately vowed to promote policies that advance the health and well-being of all Americans and to fight for transgender youth. Kamala Harris will take over the federal efforts to address illegal immigration at the U.S.-Mexico border. Harris is said to be able to work to slow the flow of, quote, irregular migrants and be responsible for establishing a new partnership with Mexico and countries in the Northern Triangle. The U.S. Postal Service unveiled Postmaster General Louis DeJoy's 10-year strategic plan. It includes higher postage rates, the effective end of first-class mail delivery, closing post offices, and reducing post office hours. That plan was widely panned by both sides of the aisle. The post office is currently losing $9 billion a year, but is also hamstrung by a massive $58 billion pension fund that Congress has forced it to fully vest. And Trump's top aide appears to have misled a Florida court about his employment status, asserting that he could no longer comply with a court order requiring to pay child support because he was out of work. 
In fact, Jason Miller was secretly re-engaged by a leading political strategy firm after he was forced to step down after a social media scandal. That company, Washington-based Taneo, wanted access to top Republicans and to conceal Miller's ongoing work with that company. Miller was supposed to have left the company, but re-signed with Taneo under a secret $500,000 a year contract. Trump is currently facing criminal investigations in New York related to financial crimes and in Georgia and D.C. related to his efforts to overturn the 2020 election. Trump is now also battling 29 separate lawsuits. Trump impeded at least nine key oversight investigations. Eleven inspector generals or their senior aides said hostility to oversight reached unprecedented levels during Trump's tenure. A new poll finds that 55% of likely voters think D.C. should be a state that is a record high level of support. The U.S. seven-day average of daily new coronavirus cases is up at least 5% in 27 states. These are the Biden files. Angel Bat Dawood performed a candlelight sonic supper as part of Take Care, Be Well for Lumpen TV. This excerpt was produced and engineered by Najee Zaid Sirsi in Studio A. Greetings, light and love, everyone. Thanks for coming over to Co-Prosperity with me today to have a special Sonic Supper. A few weeks ago, I was at the grocery store and I saw these Shabbat candles. Something inside of me said, buy them. So I did. They were sitting on my desk in my room. And then something in me was like, go on Amazon and purchase some candlesticks. So I did. And when they came in, they were really pretty. And then something told me to cook a really good meal. And I did. It was a garden omelet with like all sorts of veggies. It was so delicious. And I made a big old blueberry uh, smoothie. And I was feeling so good. And then I read a delicious book. And I knew at that moment I was taking care of myself. And it felt really good. It feels so good to just like have those simple little moments. And it all started because I was, you know, shopping and something said, pick up those little candles. So with that, I've been having a few candlelight dinners with myself and they have been very enriching. And I started adding sound to it. And that is what I'm inviting you all to do is to use sound in a different way not you sound as entertainment but you sound as entertainment Ooh. don't you sound as entertainment Ooh. but you Now I got this holy word <laughs> from a great and mighty elder in my community. His name is Avril Ra. <laughs> oh, he plays the drums like no other. I'm telling you the truth. He plays the drums like no other. I'm telling you the truth. And he told me that music is not entertainment. 
curiosity imagine science we're going to talk about something that that is a little bit um sad to hear too isn't isn't that right rowan it's heartbreaking it's it heartbreaking really is because we did it we did a poll recently it's an in-house poll that eureka cast now has done rowan and i have done in collaboration with the marzuski fund we took this poll that reached a several dozen at the very least children we asked mm-hmm. them in the chicago public schooling system what are your top 10 what what do you want to be when you grow up and we had a list of what they wanted to be when we grow up and we right. compiled it 
into a top ten, a list. top ten list, and 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 the results will shock you. Yeah, they're 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 tragic, staggering. Now, number one, astronaut. <sighs> now, on the surface, one might look at this and say, "Well, that's sort of STEM adjacent, isn't that that's, what you're looking sort for?" Sort of STEM adjacent, yeah. But at the end of the day. The astronaut is just the astrophysicist's driver. He's just taking the he's just taking the thing up there. All the science happens inside. It happens with the tools in, in that, that that the astrophysicist has worked hard on. The astronaut's just the guy making sure he's just the union worker making sure that the that the cargo gets from point A to point B. He is the guy the, the the poor schmuck that got strapped on top of the rocket yeah. so that the real work could get done on the ground. He's, he's just the poor teamster that they jammed into the in, into the shuttle. It's not a good field. It's not a good place to be. It's not what you want your children to be aspiring no. for. It's, it's frankly, it's not really STEM. Um, number two, biomedical engineer. Okay. All right, sure. It's not looking very forward. No, it, 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 yeah, it's not. Yeah, biomedical, genetic engineering—that yeah. would be a better option, I think. But biomedical engineer—it's on the right track. You know, it's right. a very. Once again, these are from eight-year-olds primarily, right. um, and and so uh, you know, it's understandable for them to, to have a, such a um, an elementary view of what they could be doing, such as biomedical. Right. Engineer. Maybe their parents were. Bio, maybe their parents just say maybe their parents are geneticists, but they say biomedical engineer because it's so much harder to describe what a geneticist does. No, no, this is when we get into the heartbreak number right, three because right. this is this is absolutely heartbreaking. Um, number three, the number three thing that children's aged eight want to be is just gig work, and that's in quotes. That is in quotes, and and this of course uh, uh, sort of encompasses it encompasses yeah many different types of gig work. Uh, you know, the various sharing, ride sharing, food sharing, right. dog sharing, that sort of thing. Not, yeah, and this is the thing. Not developing those applications. Which there needs to be more of. There needs to be way more of. It's actually doing the work in those applications, which shows a lack of, frankly, STEM and ambition in these kids. Eureka Cast Now, broadcasting Saturdays, 8 to 9 p.m. on Lumpen Radio. The Lumpen Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. The Week in Review is overseen by Jamie Trecker, voiceovers by Shanna Van Volt, additional production by Cole Eisenberg, Julie Wu, Sergio Rodriguez, Neil Gaynor, Lane Gerbig, Alexander Jerry, John Piotrowski, Ari Shellist, and Annie Klein. Live music production by Ari Shellist. The Lumpen theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. The Lumpen Radio Sting is by Dan Jugal. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com. Yeah.